Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. Governor Tony Evers has appointed Paul Burr, a longtime dairy farmer from Viroqua, to the state's Natural Resources Board. For 45 years, Burr ran an elite breeding herd of Holstein cows. He dispersed his herd two years ago. Evers called Bird a strong advocate for land and water conservation. Burr says that he is honored to represent the farmers of Wisconsin on the board and that protecting our natural resources while producing our food is a challenge and a goal for everyone in agriculture. Burr is currently serving as an appointee on the state's Technical College System Board and will resign from the position before beginning his role on the Natural Resources Board on January 20th. A Republican member of the state's Election Commission has come under fire for bragging about low voting turnout numbers in Milwaukee in the 2022 fall election. The Associated Press... Pardon me, the Associated Press reports that Robert Spindell made the comments in an email to Republican residents. In it, he said, quote, We can be especially proud that the city of Milwaukee casts 37,000 less votes than cast in the 2018 election, with a major reduction happening in the overwhelming black and Hispanic areas, end quote. Fellow Election Commissioner Mark Thompson, a Democrat, is calling for Spindell to resign. Spindell did not respond to the AP's request for comment on the matter. In the face of an increasing labor shortage, legislators are looking toward newly released prisoners as a source of labor. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that representatives from both parties have agreed to establish a few programs that might increase labor force participation. Among the measures being drafted is the establishment of a referral hotline for employers who are interested in hiring people with convictions. A second is the creation of an early release option for prisoners who have completed certain employment training and are ready to be employed. Governor Evers has said he is supportive of the purpose and strategy of the initiatives, but wants to make sure that the additional funding accompanies the programs. Assembly Speaker Robin Voss said legislative leaders have begun talking about what kind of medical marijuana proposal they could support, but he warned Governor Evers that if he includes broader marijuana legalization in his state budget, it might jeopardize Republican support. That's according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. The Senate Majority Leader Devin LeMayhew and Voss agree that they would only support a medical marijuana program aimed at treating chronic pain. Voss says that the uh, that legalizing marijuana medically would not create a pathway toward recreational use and that he does not want to create a new industry in the state. According to polling by Market University Law School, 64% of the state's residents support full legalization and more than 80% support legalizing medical marijuana. The City of Madison is holding a public informational meeting tomorrow night to discuss the rezoning of properties along future bus rapid transit lines. Transit-Oriented Development Overlay Districts, or TOD districts, will allow for housing developments along bus lines to build one zoning size larger than they are currently allowed. Tomorrow's meeting will help inform residents how the TOD districts will affect their neighborhood and why the city is pursuing them. The meeting will be held over Zoom at 6 p.m. tomorrow night. If you want to attend, you must register in advance, uh, which you can do on the Alder blog site for District 11, Alder Bill Tischler. 
And finally, Madison has something to be proud of this evening. Our flag has ranked top of class. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that an online survey by the North American Vexillological Association asked the public to rate more than 300 flags across the country, giving each a letter grade. Madison City flag was given an A by more than 2,800 folks who responded to the survey. Meanwhile, other city flags in Wisconsin didn't do quite so well. Seven town flags from Wisconsin received an F, including those from Janesville, De Pere, Kenosha, and South Milwaukee. Uh, but they shouldn't feel too terribly bad. The average grade for city flags was just a D+. Those are the headlines for this evening. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. If you use a wheelchair and need to take a cab, your options may be limited. With only around seven accessible vehicles available for on-demand rides in Madison, city officials are looking for ways to make riding a cab easier for all. WORT producer Nate Wegehaupt has more. The city's Transportation Commission is debating a resolution to help cab companies in Madison purchase accessible taxi cabs. The resolution proposes the creation of a grant open to all licensed taxi companies in Madison for $250,000 to buy accessible taxis. The grant would be available to all cab companies in Madison and not just the ones that offer accessible cabs. Currently, Union Cab is the only on-demand taxi service in Madison that offers accessible cabs. Other accessibility options, like the city's paratransit program, require at least 24-hour notice for a ride. Ben Lyman is a transportation planner with the Greater Madison MPO. He says that the purpose of the resolution is to give folks with disabilities more options in finding rides if they can't give notice until the day of. The vehicles themselves are in short supply in our area and often result in people not being able to get rides in a timely manner as they would be able to if they could use a non-accessible vehicle. Bill Carter is the business manager at Union Cab. He says that they only have about seven working accessible cabs in operation, and those cabs are all almost a decade old. Some drivers do not like driving aging vehicles. They, They rattle, they make noises. They unnerve the drivers, they unnerve the passengers. We have our own maintenance staff, and those vehicles are maintained, but you know, just the fact that those vehicles are getting older and we buy our vehicles used. It doesn't take a long time for a used vehicle to go from to where it's, you know, working and not making any noises to where it starts to make noises. The newest accessible cab in Union Cab's fleet is from 2014, with some vehicles being as old as 20 years, Carter says. The lack of accessible cabs was exasperated last year when Xerology, the parent company of Madison Green Cab, shuttered its doors. Ben Lyman says that while the direct impact of their sudden closure was minimal, it created a chain of events that put even more pressure on the strained system. When Green Cab services ended and all of the Xerology services were suspended, then all of a sudden there were simply the same number of rides needed to be provided by the fewer remaining vehicles and drivers on the road. And so suddenly 
accessible or non-accessible, Union Cab suddenly had a lot more demand than they could they could meet. This is not the first time this resolution has been discussed by the council. During budget deliberations back in November, Alder Eric Paulson first introduced the resolution to be included in the 2023 budget. But that resolution was rejected, with the City Finance Committee saying that it needed more information on how it would operate. Paulson says that the plan being discussed tonight is a more fleshed-out version of what was introduced during the budget. It was the same plan that was sort of the baseline plan that we had indicated in the in the proposal, uh, because after kind of thinking about it, we haven't come up with anything much better than that. But we have we spelled it all out now, and we're it's a little bit more of a firm, here's what's going to happen, here's not what's going to happen sort of thing, which we didn't have in the fall version of this. The Transportation Commission will not vote on the resolution tonight. Instead, tonight's meeting is more about ironing out the details about the proposal. Alder Paulson says that it should get a final vote by the commission at their January 25th meeting. After that, it would still need to be approved by the Common Council. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. Well, if you've been listening the past couple of days, you'll note that we've spoken with two of the candidates running in the spring primary election to represent the city's second district on the Madison Common Council. Tonight, we'll turn to the third candidate in that race, someone who is no stranger to the council. Juliana Bennett currently represents District 8, but after redistricting, she's now running to represent the residents in District 2. Bennett spoke with WORT producer Nate Wegehaup earlier this afternoon. The 2023 spring primary election is on February 21st, and this year there will be seven districts with at least three candidates running for an alder seat, all of which will require a primary election. One of those districts is District 2, which sits on the north side of the Capitol Square on the Isthmus. Juliana Bennett is currently the alder of District 8, but after redistricting, she is now running to remain on the council in District 2. Juliana joins me now by phone. Thank you so much for talking with me. Of course. Thank you. And now, Juliana, I know a lot of people in District 8 probably know who you are, but now you're running for District 2. So why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure. I know it's a bit awkward running for 8 and 2, but, you know, as I'm knocking doors, I am seeing people I know, people know me. So that's a bit refreshing. But telling you a bit about myself, my name is Juliana Bennett. I use they pronouns. I've lived in Madison for about seven years now, and I recently graduated in December from UW-Madison with degrees in real estate and political science. Beyond that, I am one of the youngest elected officials in the state of Wisconsin, as I've been serving as the District 8 Alder on Madison Common Council since 2021. I got to this point based off of like how I was raised just on community values. I come from a working class family where my mom was a nurse and a union member for 22 years. And my dad is a retired veteran and a small business owner. So early on, I learned how to work together with the community. I saw them working with the community. I learned from um, that experience. And then how I got to Madison, I was accepted into a pre-college program at UW when I was 15. I then graduated from Madison West High School and eventually came to UW. While in school, even though, even within my my first day as a student, I was confronted with just the financial and racial disparities that exist in our community. 
And it was really troubling, which is why I started to get involved with the Black Lives Matter movement, which then led me to get involved with ASM student government, eventually co-found the Madison BIPOC Coalition. Then I ran for city council in 2021, and the rest is history. What do you do in your Mm -hmm. spare time? Oh, that's a fun question. In my spare time... (laughs) It's funny because I don't get much spare time between council. Now I graduated, so I have a bit more spare time. But I really enjoy spending time with um, my family and friends. My dad recently uh, went into cardiac arrest in October. So it was a really scary moment where we didn't know if he would survive. He did. It was great. But that's why I try to spend as much time as I can with him as his primary caretaker. I love just sitting down and watching movies. He likes watching those 1950s old movies. I like going out with my friends down State Street or just hanging out there in apartments and playing with their cats. And when I'm alone, I do a lot of painting. I love watercolor painting because it's, it's very therapeutic for me. Or I watch... Hulu because, um, and Rick and Morty, because that's my life. <laughs> All right. Now moving on to, you know, looking at Madison, what, what are some of the most pressing issues facing Madison that you would want to address if you got another few years on the council? In my time as council, it's very, very clear that there's a few priorities that we need to be addressing. One, affordable housing, two, transportation, three, violence prevention, And then things that kind of come under that, like sustainability, housing the houseless population, things of that nature. We are currently in a housing crisis. We are in a severe housing shortage. It is damn near impossible to find any sort of housing in Madison, let alone affordable housing. And that is and has been my priority to address on council. Let's get into housing a little bit. What sort of key initiatives would you like to to see to help bring more affordable housing here to Madison? Sure. Um, Before I get more into the policy side of things, I kind of want to share why affordable housing is so important to our community, why it is my passion. Back in January of last year, January 2022, I received an eviction notice. This came about after I literally had no money in the bank because I was spending it on food or other personal items that needed to be taken care of. And it sucked. It was scary. I've been there through trying to figure out how to get support services through Dane Corps or the Tenant Resource Center. And I think this is what something that really sets me apart from the other candidates in the pool and current council members is that I know what it's like to literally scrape the bottom of the barrel of love to put money together to pay rent. That's why I have championed affordable housing policies, including zoning initiatives, inclusionary zoning or inclusionary planning. I should say we can't do exclusionary zoning and expanding our TIF policy. Um, One policy that I have coming down the pipeline right now is a zoning incentive that will grant potential developers height incentives if they provide a set amount of affordable units, similar to the Olive Madison or the Lake Street Campus Garage. I also want to protect tenants from predatory practices. All too often, we are faced with the decision to sign a lease that is overly priced and overly bougie or something that is just run down and 
that shouldn't be the case. So I find it incumbent upon myself as an alder to connect residents with city building inspection, whose main purpose is whose purpose is to um, make sure that checking on people's living situations, like if the heating isn't working or if there's rodents in the apartment, they would then give the landlord a notice and then if they don't fix it within a certain amount of time, they get fined and the resident could get rent abatement. I also want to increase funding for tenants facing eviction. We already have several support services, such as like the Tenant Resource Center, the Dancor 2.0 program, Urban Triage, et cetera, whose job is to help tenants facing eviction. Or the thing that I've noticed with these programs is that they are severely understaffed and can't get through these applications as quick as possible. So as Alder, I will support giving more funding within our budget to the support services. And finally, on that note, partner with nonprofits to provide emergency rental assistance. The Dancor funds are quickly depleting because that was in emergency services from COVID-19. And I strongly believe that the city should keep funding the program after those funds get through, whether it be through grants or providing zero interest loans to residents just to help them get on their feet, be able to pay their down payments, be able to find a co-signer or pay back owed rent. And finally, on the housing note, I want to preserve naturally occurring affordable housing. This is like one of the strongest mechanisms in downtown Madison to not have these luxury high rises and high rent prices, and then also support our large community of co-ops. Um, in downtown Madison through connecting them with education resources and grant programs to help their programs keep up and running. Now, moving on, another sort of key issue here in Madison is transit. And now we know that bus rapid transit is set to take into effect later this summer. How, How do you feel about the bus rapid transit? As Alder, I supported bus rapid transit. I've literally spent hundreds of hours researching, talking with other Alders, talking with the mayor um, about bus rapid transit, and I'm excited for it to get up and running starting later in this year. So I do support it, and I will support expansion of the program. I know Mayor Satya is looking to add another line in the West Madison, and I will be supportive of that. My main concern is the equity of it, um, making sure that it's accessible to all and addressing the needs of community members, especially the disabled community and people of color that don't already have access. I, I believe, though, that transit doesn't, we can't just rely on BRT to solve all of our um, transit issues. It needs to come from a wide range of areas. That means our metro network redesign. That means we need to continue funding and expanding our Vision Zero program um, with the goal of eliminating traffic-related deaths. We recently passed Green Streets, and I'm excited to see that up and running. And I'm excited to advocate for a downtown location of the during the rail study. So I think transportation... I I am supportive of BRT, but I'm also supportive of looking beyond bus rapid transit to make sure that people can bike, walk, bus, maybe possibly take the train safely in Madison. 
And now the final issue I sort of want to get into here is the F-35 fighter jets, which are coming to Madison later this spring. How do you feel about the F-35 jets? I'm not excited. I'm not excited, Nate. It kind of sucks. Um, I don't know how anyone could be supportive of F-35 fighter jets, especially when it just expands and supports the over-militarization of of our U.S. Department of State military services and does not provide any benefit to our community outside of more noise pollution, outside of more exhausts that are going to hurt our sustainability efforts. It doesn't make sense to me why they would put it in Madison, which is traditionally an urban area. My thing is, is that as an alder, what I can do is continue advocating with our federal representatives, such as Senator Baldwin and Representative Mark Bocan, to not let these F-35 jets come to Madison. And furthermore, on a city level, we need to start making decisions about how we want to address um, housing and the effects of the F-35 jets. More recently, we had the Ramish Farm debate, which Ramish Farm is on the north side. And at first, I did not support that project because of the impact of F-35s. Later on, I did support it because we Mm -hmm. do need more housing. And that's just a question of, like, do we want to put people in housing where there will be F-35 noise pollution? Or do we just say, you know what, we need more housing, so let's do it anyways. And I don't have the best answer to that. And I think that answer needs to come from the community, which is why it's all the more important that we listen to community members and actively seek out their voices before doing any sort of city programming. Now, wrapping up here, Juliana, do you have just any quick final thoughts that you'd like to uh, share with us here? I, once again, thank you for your time um, and thank you for having me. If you would like more information, please check out our website. It's Juliana, J-U-L-I-A-N-A, 4district2.com. At that website, you can see more about me, what I've done in in my time on council, um, our priorities, our endorsements, and how to vote. Again, I'm really just in this to be here for Madison, to listen to your voices and to uplift our community. And I believe that I am the best person to serve in this position because of my experience, because of my um, lived experience, because of the what I have accomplished and what I will continue to do on council. So the primary election date is February 21st. Please vote for me and vote for Everett Mitchell for Wisconsin Supreme Court. And I thank you again for your time. And we have a drag show kickoff and fundraiser event January 20th from 7 to 9 p.m. at the Ruby Lounge with Liquid Madison, performances by Sunshine Rainbow, guest speaker Francesca Hong. I hope to see you all there. I've been talking with Juliana Bennett, current alder of District 8 and now a candidate for the spring primary election for District 2. Like Juliana said, the spring primary election takes place on February 21st and the spring general election takes place on April 4th. Juliana, thank you again so much for coming on and talking with me. Of course. Thank you for having me. The 
time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. Though we've had a relatively warm winter so far, many Madisonians are still hoping to get out on their skates. On this episode of Parks and Landmarks, contributor Sean Bull gives us a guide to skating in Madison Parks and previews some upcoming events on the ice. You're listening to Parks and Landmarks, an exploration of the underrated outdoors. I'm Sean Bull. There are few activities more iconic to a northern winter than ice skating. The concept of strapping blades to one's feet and gliding over a frozen pond is simple, but it has endured for centuries. Skiing and sledding have had a similar cultural longevity, but they are inherently limited to places which have significant hills. Skating is for everyone. It only takes a low-lying place, water, and the right weather. Of course, the right weather is never guaranteed. This episode will first air in January of 2023. Looking out my window, I see an expanse of brownish-green grass. At the edge of the street, a thin strip of snow remains where it once was piled high by plows. People still seem to be ice fishing, but I can't say I trust the condition of any outdoor rink. Still, in a Wisconsin winter, outdoor skating is the only way to go. Indoor ice arenas abound here, but their reliability makes them a bit boring. At this point, we've had weeks of above-freezing high temperatures, but I'm still hoping the weather will turn and we'll be able to get out on the ice again. Clearly, I'm not the only one holding on to hope, as the Madison Parks Department has weeks of skating activities set on their calendar. So, whether the rinks are currently ready or not, here's your guide to skating the Madison Parks. The Madison Parks Department lists 19 distinct bodies of ice on the skating page of their website. Some of these are contained within the same park. For instance, Vilas Park has a natural frozen lagoon, a less natural ice rink, and a dedicated hockey rink, all physically near to each other, but listed separately. This allows the Parks Department to close individual rinks when unsafe without having to mark all the skating rinks at one park closed. I'm going to mention this a lot, but I'll link the ice skating page of the Madison Parks website in the online version of this article. The flagship skating parks of the Madison system are Tenney, Vilas, and Elver. When the ice is good, these three parks offer staffed warming houses complete with restrooms, concessions, and most importantly, skate rentals. They also offer room to spread out. Tenney is the best at this. Depending on the conditions, the skatable area of its lagoon can be huge. But each offers at least an additional rink for pickup hockey games and other benefits as well. Tenney may have the biggest ice surface, but Elver has all kinds of winter fun. If you get bored skating there, you're right underneath Madison's biggest sledding hill, complete with artificially made snow. And it's also a popular destination for cross-country skiing. Vilas Park isn't as spacious as either, but it might have the best ambiance out of the three. Tenney and Elver are right by busy roads, but Vilas only borders a quiet neighborhood and Lake Wingra. If you have to rent skates, those are your best options. If you're not so restricted, there are 10 other neighborhood parks that, in theory, have their own rinks to enjoy. 
This has not been a good year to research and test skating rinks, but I have been able to get out and enjoy a few. I'm particularly a fan of how parks like Westmoreland and Hillington Green light their ice at night. Many parks use big lights on a pole. This style of light works just as well on ice as it does in a stadium or parking lot. But it's kind of clinical, if I'm being picky. Ice skating is supposed to be romantic, not just as a popular activity for dates, but in a more general, poetic sense. So even a little effort to class up the lighting goes a long way. Some parks have taken to using strands of little warm white lights, which in my opinion is way better for ambiance on ice. At the time of this broadcast, only one location, the ice rink at Vilas Park, is currently marked as open for skating. Still, conditions change, so any of the other rinks could, theoretically, be usable within a few days. The following is, in order, a list of free events at Madison's skating rinks over the next two months. This Friday, January 13th, marks the first in a series entitled Groove and Glide. Every Friday evening for the next five weeks, a different park will come alive with music and lights. People will dance, play games, and make the most of this year's so far subpar supply of ice. The first Groove and Glide is supposed to take place at Elver Park, which at the moment is not open for skating. Still, it's supposed to cool off a bit over the next couple days, and Elver has been open more than most this year. The best way to stay informed is to check the Madison Park's Twitter and their ice skating page, which I will link here in the online version of this article. This Saturday, from 4 to 7.30 p.m., Tenney Park is hosting Skate Cinema. The Frozen Lagoon will be operating its normal skating rentals and concessions, but at 5.30, the lights will dim and attendees will be treated to a screening of 2002's Disney's Snow Dogs. I've never seen the movie, but the tagline listed online simply says, When a Miami dentist inherits a team of sled dogs, he's got to learn the trade or lose his pack to a crusty mountain man. So, it's the classic hero's journey. A tale as old as time, really. Those who can attend can either watch from atop their skates, or bring a lawn chair and get a more stationary view. Those choosing not to skate can keep themselves warm around a provided bonfire or with a cup of available coffee. I'm not sure whether the lagoon will be ready by Saturday, but I'll link the relevant sites to check online at wortfm.org. The next event has already been rescheduled once, so we're now hoping the ice will be ready by Tuesday, January 17th. At 6 p.m., the Badger women's hockey team will be at Vilas Park, skating for 90 minutes with their community and fans. The warming shelter will be open, renting skates and selling concessions. The event is free, and this is the first time it's been held since before the coronavirus pandemic. Assuming nothing else gets rescheduled, the last skating events on the calendar are four more groove and glides. These will take place every Friday from 6 to 8 and will occur in order at Rennebaum, Vilas, Westmoreland, and Ulbrich Parks. If you'd like to suggest a topic for Parks and Landmarks to cover, please send it my way at sean.bull at wardfm.org. Tell me about your favorite underrated spot outdoors, or whatever you feel is related. This segment's title is intentionally broad, so just go for it. I'd love to hear from you guys.
Again, that's S-E-A-N dot B-U-L-L at W-O-R-T-F-M dot org. For W-O-R-T News, I'm Sean Bull. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with W-O-R-T weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, we've managed to break out the sun three days running now, which, uh, given the prevalence of low-level moisture and very light winds, has uh, been a nice bit of luck. You may have been able to tell yesterday, uh, either from looking at visible satellite imagery or simply looking out the window or both, that we were just on the margins of a large blanket of fog and low clouds. We were on the southern margin in in this particular case. And that uh, area of fog and low clouds was sitting over the, uh, generally, the more snow-packed areas just to our north. So it was really by random chance that at the very southern edge of it down here, we managed to poke the sun out for at least a couple hours on and off during the afternoon. We've had a couple weak uh, surface low-pressure circulations drifting eastward across the area the past two days as well. And the convergence and lift associated with those, uh, while marginal, has also been... uh, negative factors for uh, clearing the skies for any length of time. Well, I mentioned on the Monday morning forecast that anomalous thermal homogeneity, at least uh, for winter across the continent, especially in the north-south direction, was one of the general factors that's been producing this very uneventful stretch of weather and uh, warm temperatures as well. But I also mentioned that a more uh, characteristically winter-like pattern looked perhaps to be setting out, uh, setting up out past the uh, middle of the month next week, and that does still look to be largely on track. While there are no uh, immediate indications of a prospective uh, pattern change visible on the water vapor imagery of the continent that we have linked up on the WORT weather webpage this evening, what you can see there is the storm uh, to our southwest currently that's going to uh, finally at least bring us some wind tomorrow after uh, having uh, been in the doldrums for several days now. The little uh, upper air swirl in the vapor elements over southwestern Kansas is already dropping the surface pressures out ahead of it over central Oklahoma. And although I thought we might have a prospect for seeing a few uh, snowflakes from that uh, circulation as it passed to our south tomorrow, system snows are generally looking to hold well down in Illinois on basically all the high-resolution models at this point. Although we may get some passing uh, snow showers Possibly during the overnight uh, into Friday as the upper trough behind the storm approaches and passes overhead here. The primary effect of this storm for us will be to ratchet up the northerly winds over the next couple of days, which will hold temperatures down some, but still not really take us into anything we would consider below normal territory. A more amplified upper air pattern as we go into next week will first serve to warm us as the troughing along the west coast, which has been pounding California, moves inland and deepens a surface low pressure over the Panhandle region on Sunday. That should turn on the southerly winds here. Unlike tomorrow's storm, this one looks to hook right up in our direction on Monday, although uh, just at the moment, the mid-range models are indicating it'll probably be at least marginal uh, temperature-wise for snow, perhaps giving us just a rain on Tuesday. A second wave passing across the continent on Wednesday into Thursday looks to have a slightly colder environment in which to work. And then we'll have yet one more uh, wave passing at the weekend, which also looks like it may have hold a reasonable prospect for snow. 
So after a dull couple of weeks here, we should be getting three shots at seeing something a little more like uh, Wisconsin winter weather next week. If you've been missing the snow, cross your fingers. Plenty of details yet to be worked out on those, so stay tuned. But back to what will be one more generally uneventful forecast period. Uh, tonight, sky should generally continue to thicken downward overnight, with the uh, overcast likely to greet us uh, yet one more day in a row tomorrow. Temperatures will drop back to the low 30s on increasing northwest to northwest wind, northwest to north winds, uh, coming up to 8 to 12 miles per hour by morning. Tomorrow should be generally cloudy, breezy, and cool, with temperatures held in the uh, low to mid 30s on northerly winds up at 10 to 17 miles per hour by afternoon. Passing uh, light snow showers are possible later in the day or more likely in the overnight period, though I'm not expecting really any accumulation to speak of. Temperatures overnight will drop into the mid-20s on continued northerly winds up at 12 to 17 miles per hour. Friday, uh, storm-related cloud cover should generally be working eastward out of the area through the day, and uh, some sunshine, especially in the mid or late day hours, will allow temperatures to reach 30 or so. That'll be despite continued northerly winds, which will be up fairly briskly at 8 to 12 miles per hour. Skies will, I think, stay largely clear through the overnight, with a low temperature down around 20 on northwesterly winds, which uh, should come down finally near calm during the overnight period. And Saturday should be mostly clear, with temperatures reaching the low 30s again, as light winds back southwesterly at 3 to 7 miles per hour. And will stay warmish, possibly with increased clouds uh, and uh, a temperature in the 30-degree range as we go overnight, uh, with continued southerly winds, and will be likely up towards 40 degrees on Sunday as southerly winds increase further ahead of the approaching system on Monday. At the moment, down here at the station on Bedford Street, the temperature is 39 degrees. The dew point temperature is 32. Winds are out of the north, uh, very light, 3 miles per hour currently. Uh, a few low clouds and uh, passing at about 2,000 feet and uh, passing cirrus up above that. And the barometer is at 29.82 inches of mercury and rising. We go now to the second week of January in the late 1960s. When heroes died, Bascom Hill and the Old Red Gym were threatened, and a rock and roller returned. Stu Levitan does the time traveling on tonight's Madison in the 60s. All these Madison, the second week of January in the late 1960s. Daniel P. Parkinson, Jr., 33, 1208 Vilas Avenue, becomes the first Madison fireman to die in the line of duty since 1947 when a falling timber knocks him unconscious as he is fighting a fire in the 200 block of State Street on January 8, 1966. His oxygen mask is dislodged and he dies of smoke inhalation the fourth firefighter fatality in the city's history. Parkinson grew up on Milton Street, a few blocks west of South Park, graduated from Central High. A combat medic during the Korean War, he was a big athletic fellow, but so soft-spoken he was nicknamed Monk. That was doubly appropriate. Along with his wife Christine, Parkinson was a knowledgeable and enthusiastic jazz aficionado. After a 1959 trip to Ripon to see pianist Dave Brubeck, they developed a friendship with his saxophonist, Paul Desmond, 
and were eagerly awaiting the upcoming Brubeck and John Coltrane concerts. Hundreds of Parkinson's friends and family, and firemen from around the state, fill St. James Church for the funeral on January 11th. Among the pallbearers is his boyhood friend, restaurant owner Tony Lombardino, who gave Parkinson his nickname. When people learn that the city's survivor benefits end in less than eight years, a scholarship fund is established for the three children, ages four to seven. The Common Council also adopts a resolution that when a new central fire station is built, it will be dedicated in Parkinson's memory. Fire Chief Ralph McGraw blames faulty wiring for the fire at 227-229 State Street, which does a quarter million dollars in damage and destroys Sir Genyon's carpets and a hearing aid store. For days, thousands of Madisonians drive past the scene of the tragedy, creating traffic jams with their rubbernecking, until cold rain and snow drive them away, leaving ice on the sidewalk for weeks afterward. The Madison School Board and Madison Teachers Incorporated had agreed in mid-1966 on a wage package that would keep teachers the lowest paid among major Wisconsin cities. But the board balked at agreeing to the union's top priority, compulsory arbitration of grievances. Finally, as the second semester of 66-67 starts, the board yields, and the contract is quickly ratified. Madison will pay beginning teachers $5,500 next year. Pay in other cities ranges up to $6,000 in Racine. There was statewide celebration when they dedicated the University of Wisconsin Armory Gymnasium in 1894, but more than 70 years later, the building is badly deteriorated, and administrators think the lakeside site begs for better use. As 1967 opens, it appears the old red gym will soon be closing and coming down, just as the university declared would happen when it adopted the North Lower Campus Plan in 1960. There is a university commitment to pull down the old red gym, University President Fred Harvey Harrington tells the regents, so, quote, it will be raised this summer. There's, quote, considerable disagreement over whether the site should be used for a faculty lounge, guest house, or some other purpose, he says, but agreement that, quote, the building should be raised. It's too expensive to convert to office space, University Vice President Robert Claudius says, making it, quote, unfit for anything other than sweaty exercise. And students can get their sweaty exercise at the massive new gym out by the Western playing fields after it opens that fall, Harrington says, so the old red gym won't be needed. Chancellor Robin Fleming isn't so sure, predicting, quote, a good deal of faculty and student resistance if there's not a recreational replacement in the area. And he reveals that he is not a fan of the building's Richardson Romanesque design. I don't feel attracted to the aesthetic value, he says. And two graduates of East High School are killed in combat the same day, January 12, 1967. Major Charles Toma, 30, East High, 1954, UW Class of 1958, is fatally shot in the head by a sniper while leading a search-and-destroy mission of the famed Black Lion 2nd Battalion in the jungle northwest of Saigon. The son of retired Army Colonel Henry C. Toma, 4182 Nakoma Road, and Mrs. Clifford Engel of San Francisco, 
Major Toma was captain of the UW cross-country team, a member of the track and wrestling teams, and a member of Phi Kappa Sigma fraternity. Recipient of the Army Commendation Medal with Oak Leaf Clusters, he is survived by his parents and his wife, the former Beverly Hubbard, and three sons. Army Private First Class Thomas E. Pete Matouche, 21, East High Class 1964, 1959 East Washington Avenue, was drafted shortly after high school graduation and sent to Vietnam three weeks before his 21st birthday. Four months later, Matouche is on a recon mission in Long Con Province when the truck he's in goes over a landmine and he is killed. With the city's growing number of Spanish-speaking migrant families having housing problems in early 1968, the Madison Housing Authority reserves up to 20 public housing units for their use. More than 30 migrant families have arrived in Madison since last fall. Former UW student Steve Miller, who left Madison in 1965, returns in triumph when he plays the factory on the 9th. Miller, whose band also includes fellow UW dropout Boz Skaggs, just signed with Capitol Records for an unprecedented half million dollars. West High School principal Oris C. Betcher banned students from bringing the current issue of the underground newspaper Connections into the school because he finds some of the artwork in the current issue obscene. The chair of the university's parking board wants to excavate part of Bascom Hill for an underground 600-car parking ramp. Professor Wallace Cleveland says that even though the project would cause the loss of the hill's elm trees, he doesn't think there will be too much opposition because, quote, they will have to go away anyway, victims of Dutch elm disease. Elma Christensen was a welfare caseworker who became the city's first female welfare director in 1953 and for 15 years ran her department without challenge. On January 10, 1968, police find her body on the floor of her home at 2205 Rowley Avenue. The coroner concludes she died of a heart attack about a week prior. Elma Christensen was 55 years old. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-sponsored WORT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. I'll remind you that this show is put together largely by volunteers, so if there's an area of news that you don't think we're covering especially well, you can come down here and do it yourself if you like. We'd love to have you, and we provide all the training, so do consider it. Get in touch with the station during business hours if you want to come and join the only local, locally produced, volunteer-produced news in the area. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Special thanks to feature contributors Sean Bull and Stu Levitan. Chuck Cademan produced, or excuse me, engineered tonight's broadcast. Nate Weggehow produced it. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the, <clears throat> excuse me, stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night.